0: Nissan Vinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, or Koroi Hawkins. Coming up...
1: Ministry of Health, they're being cautious, they want to contain the virus, But it doesn't take away the fact that, they, uh, that it's
2: causing a lot of mental uh, challenges for people.
0: Trauma symptoms still prevalent in Tonga, three months after the volcanic eruption and tsunami.
2: It's different in the sense that we have new political parties coming in, uh, as well as uh, the alliances between the bodies.
0: Fiji election polls point to another tight election race, according to an academic. While
3: I was there, I brought up some issues that were of great concern to the workers.
0: And a Samoan community leader in Australia says the response to RSC problems has been too slow. It's been over three months since the devastating eruption of the Hungatonga Hungahapai volcano and subsequent tsunami in Tonga, and survivors are still coming to terms with the event. Experts say the eruption, 500 times more powerful than a nuclear bomb, generated 15-metre-high tsunami waves and sent up volcanic ash plumes that turned night into day. Final Fornoa
1: reports. Amanaki Misa, a mental health specialist in Donga, says the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder among citizens in the kingdom are clearly visible, especially in children. Every time there is thunder, kids would cover their ears and run and hide, um, look for a table or something to to hide under. Like the kids would be outdoor playing, and even out in the rain because it's tropical rain, but as soon as there's thunder, the life is no longer there. Misa traveled to Tonga with a team of counselors and mental health nurses on March 30th to assist the humanitarian efforts in the kingdom. His team have been busily training local health workers in counseling and providing therapy to people evacuated from islands wiped out by tsunami waves. He says the stress of living under strict COVID lockdowns currently imposed in the country are exacerbating people's frustrations and anxieties. The Ministry of Health that they're being cautious, they want to contain the virus. But it doesn't take away the fact that, they, uh, that it's causing a lot of mental uh, challenges for people. It doesn't help, but people understand it, it, it's inevitable and they've got to go through it. It's just managing how they respond, getting them to respond properly rather than reacting to it and turning into illegal activities perhaps or other, other means. Peter Paulson Nuku'alofa for Rotary Assistant Governor, who has been busily coordinating donations from rotaries around the world, echoed missus' observations. Paulson is a British expat and witnessed the volcanic eruption and tsunami from his home, located near Nuku'alofa's waterfront. He says that people were edgy and anxious in the weeks following the disaster.
3: Even the weather forecast guy announced, he said, we're going to have rain and thunder and lightning. It is just normal thunder. Don't worry, it is not the volcano. You, sort of, you, you, you do feel, you, just, you, you, you notice that your ability to process information, to, to th- think things through is, is more effective, and it, it's subtle.
1: Dongo Red Cross Secretary General Sione Daomoi Falao says there are efforts underway by agencies in the kingdom to address the psychological impacts of the disaster. Dao Moi Falau expressed his concern in particular with the hundreds of evacuees who have been housed in church halls since the eruption. He says the evacuees have lost everything, including their livelihoods, and now wait anxiously for relocation and new homes.
3: Uh, we are considering the, assisting them on the psychological support, and of course there's some other assistance here they respond to, but uh, yeah it's a big issue for them for staying for three months in the same area. There's no uh, real livelihood activities, but also facing the challenge.
1: Tonga's only psychologist Mapa Buloka told RNZ that mental illness is heavily stigmatized in the kingdom and considered to be a form of weakness. He says that in the last two decades, only one person has admitted themselves to the country's psychiatric ward.
0: A Fijian academic says political polls in the country point to another tight contest for the upcoming elections. Campaigning is underway in Fiji, although an election date has yet to be officially announced. The ruling Fiji First Party, led by Frank Bainimarama, secured victory at the last election in 2018 with the slimmest of margins over his rival, Sitiveni Rambuka, who contested under the Sudalpa Party. Political polls in Fiji since that election have shown a downwards trend in the popularity of the dominant Fiji First Party. Joining me is Fijian academic, Professor Stephen Ratuva, who is now the director of the Macmillan Brown Centre of Pacific Studies at the University of Canterbury here in New Zealand. Bula, and welcome back on Pacific Waves, Professor. Let's start with the political landscape in Fiji. It's completely different from what it was at the last election, isn't it?
2: It's different in the sense that we have new political parties coming in, uh, as well as uh, the alliances between the parties. that's something which is uh, new here, uh, the pre-election alliances, because people are worried about uh, whether they'll get over 5%. And also it's a good way of uh, making sure that they have a much more diverse uh, uh, support base and also to expand their support base uh, in a way which will help them in the election. So uh, at the moment, you have uh, two alliances. See, amongst the, uh, uh, the opposition parties, the small uh, minority parties, uh, there's an uh, anxiety about uh, who's going to get what. So now they are positioning themselves to be able to maximize the benefit from the election. And one way of doing that is to make sure that they have this common front uh, formed between political parties. So it's it's not uncommon in various countries in the world. Uh, In fact, in Fiji itself, we've had coalitions, but a lot of those coalitions, discussions of coalitions have taken place prior to the election. The very uh, uh, prominent one was between the uh, Labour Party and the National Federation Party uh, way back uh, before the 1987 election. Uh, Since then, there have been coalition governments, uh, but often uh, formed after the election. So it's nothing new in Fiji in terms of the pre-coalition arrangement, but it has a purpose. The purpose is is really to kind of consolidate their political power in relation to mobilizing votes, uh, particularly for this particular uh, electoral system where you have to get over the 5% threshold getting over the 5% threshold for the small parties is not easy. So one way of making sure that they do that is to have a kind of alliance of some kind so that they will uh, share some of the, the votes, but it can also be risky in the sense that uh, if they have merged as a, as a political group before the election, uh, then they will be able to bring together all the votes from the different political parties. But now they have to wait until after the election. So some of them may survive. Some of them may not.
0: Going back to the the election, the last election, it was a really narrow win for Fiji. Fiji first. A lot has happened since then in Fiji with the pandemic, um, uh, with with all of the issues that have been happening. Um, as we know, heavily tourism reliant Fiji was severely impacted. Um, what do you think the election issues are this time around?
2: See the pandemic has impacted a lot in many countries in terms of the political uh, circumstances. Because if you're in power at the time of the pandemic, then, of course, you get the flag. That's what's happening in New Zealand and uh, uh, in the United States under Trump and uh, various other places in the, in the world. Those countries which have elections in the pandemic find that uh, the leaders have to work very hard to be reelected. So uh, um, certainly in the case of Fiji. But there are other cases, other issues as well that we have to think about in terms of uh, how Fiji has been tre- trending. So uh, this perception that maybe there will be a significant change in the political gravity this time around. Uh, if you look at the uh, uh, the polling so far uh, in Fiji, although the polling is very, very uh, bad in Fiji in terms of uh, uh, consistent polling, um, and the only p- paper which was doing a polling, uh, they were growled by the government because they were not polling well. Um, In many countries in the world, like the United States, you have daily polls, weekly polls, and adds up to monthly polls and all those. And a lot of polling uh, in New Zealand. The polling has been relatively accurate uh, in terms of prediction. If you look at prediction over the years, especially in the last uh, few years I've been here in New Zealand, it's just spot on. Now, in the case of uh, Fiji, uh, the polling before before the 2014 election, so the Fiji first polling up to like, 60 to 80%. But they managed to get 60%. Uh, so uh, um, plus or minus uh, 5% or 6%, sometimes uh, crazy figures like 10% or 20% uh, in terms of the uh, the margin of error. But in 2018, the pollings were showing that the future phase has really come down. It was showing like from uh, 40-something percent, close to 50%, up to 60% uh, in the series of pollings. Uh, and Eventually, they got about 51, 52 percent, very close. So it's within that range. And now the polling is about 20 percent, 20, 22 percent. So that alone, if you do another poll and another one and another one, if it talks about the same thing, uh, and even if you have a margin of error of about 10 or 20, so that means that there's going to be a a major shift in the political gravity and uh, there might be a change of government. So unfortunately, we don't have consistent polling in Fiji. They, this is when they should be doing it. The major papers like Fiji Times and the Fiji Sun, it, because it's important for the people of Fiji at this particular point in uh, in the election uh, to be engaged in uh, in the democratic process of uh, providing. Uh, their own views as to who should be there before the actual election itself, mm. and, it's, uh, and it's and it's good for political parties as well, whether you're in power or whether you're in opposition.
0: Now, the looking at the the, the big the big story in the opposition, the split, um, uh, Rambuka forming his own party. Do you think that shift? And he has taken a lot of big hit- hitters with him. From by all accounts, that do you think there's been enough time for the legwork for the message of that change to filter down through to the voter base? Or do you think the Sudelpa stronghold will will still be faithful to the traditional hierarchy?
2: Well, well it depends very much on the dynamics. I mean, the traditional hierarchy itself, uh, uh, in terms of loyalty to the traditional hierarchy in Fiji shifts quite significantly from party to party. It depends very much on the individuals. It's not something which is static, which is there all the time. It depends very much on the human agencies and who are the chiefs, who are the people, and the chiefs, they change their allegiances uh, even now and then. And uh, w- the split within Sudelpa is quite significant in terms of uh, the Toki votes having to, uh, to decide which way to go. And Rambuka would have uh, uh, mobilized quite a significant number uh, which goes with him with the new uh, People's Alliance Party, PAP. And uh, and of course, the other smaller parties, the National Federation Party has a significant uh, uh, TOKAY following. Uh, then you have the Unity Party, Banarumbe, It has a, a, a growing number of uh, TOKAY supporters as well. So the TOKAY support is going to be split uh, in significant ways uh, between um, three or four major parties vying for, for support. And the Indo-Fijian vote as well. A number of them would probably uh, untie themselves from the Fiji First. Fiji First uh, basically uh, um, control much of the votes uh, in the last two elections. And uh, so there's a kind of swing away from the Fiji First. But where it, it becomes interesting is to see how the uh, the new configuration of votes and where they go, is it enough to unseat the Fiji First or not? Uh, that is the big question at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so splits we- can be significant. Uh, if the splits are so uh, such that it might give uh, advantage to the Fiji first, uh, that's something still to be done. But if, if one goes by the, uh, the poll, which is kind of, kind of very, very uh, limited, uh, which was uh, done by the Fiji Sun, then uh, uh, it's going to be very interesting in the sense that the split is going to be such that you actually would need a uh, coalition. To rule Which, in a way, is something positive for Fiji because Fiji needs to have a much more diverse uh, governmental system i so, come
0: um, I'll come to the co- I want to come to the coalition next, but before I go there, just uh, uh, looking at Fiji first now, like based on what we saw at the last election I, I was in Fiji for a bit of the campaigning before the polls it 's a really slick operation like it it it, it, it correct me if i 'm wrong here it it feels like they look after their own well, like if you 're in the Fiji first fold you're in the club so to speak like that that appeal for that that being looked after for being where the things are happening the the contracts the money the advertisements or business all of that appeal that Fiji First has uh in in with the government and the way that it's it's run that that's a significant thing to try and overcome is it not
2: uh, you're right so the Fiji First has a corporate backing if you look at the list of funders you're basically talking about the corporate institutions in Fiji, the corporate establishment, uh, and the big money and the small money, and those in between. Uh, And that's what the small parties uh, are fighting against. Uh, Big money versus uh, small money, and some parties no money whatsoever. So it's going to be a battle of resources to some extent. Uh, A battle of resources, a battle of ideology, a bell of technique as well. Even if you don't have uh, resources, it is to do with being strategic about how you go about it. It's being innovative and creative in terms of how you infiltrate into the communities, into the minds of the communities. And of course, nowadays, the use of the social media, the use of the virtual space is very, very important in politics, uh, as they call it, the the politics of virtuality or the uh, digital democracy. So people just see faces, people just get the narratives from the social media, and that will, in many ways, significantly now, uh, determine their vote. So uh, it's going to be a battle fought out in that that space. At the same time, there are those who don't connect with the cyberspace uh, in the communities, in the villages, uh, who want to see the real person and connect with the real person. Uh, And that's where some of the small parties come in. Uh, especially if you can fight against those parties with a big money. Uh, And then, of course, uh, you have the battle over territory, not just ideological territory, the Ivano cultural territory as well, and the uh, geopolitical territory, uh, whether it's uh, Lao, or whether it's Kandavu or whether it's uh, Namosi. And some of these places have um, historically voted together as a bloc for a party. Uh, In some places like, like in Suva and urban areas and around certain parts of Viti uh diverse voting patterns are normally seen. But in some of those uh, rural areas, there's a kind of territorial political group which uh, uh, kind of thinks and, and votes in a particular way. So, yeah, so it's going to be a battle between all these different aspects of, uh, of contestation.
0: A Samoan community leader in Australia says the Samoan government has known for a long time about concerns over the treatment of their seasonal workers in Australia, but it has not done much to address them. This week, Samoa's Minister for Commerce, Industry and Labour, Leatinu Wayne Soyalo, tabled the Labour and Employment Relations Amendment Bill 2022, which is aimed at improving working conditions for seasonal workers in Australia and New Zealand. The government also recently suspended flights scheduled to take more seasonal workers to both countries. Lieta Sauluma Dugan says the Samoan government are well aware of workers experiencing exploitation and slave-like conditions, having put forward submissions themselves to Australia as far back as 2019. She spoke with RNZ Pacific reporter Susanna Suisuiki.
3: Well, my job at the moment as an advocate, like, for example, when we went up to Mariba. um last week, I took the opportunity um, to take our workers to the doctors because I, I made appointments to go up there and, and do that. Then after that, I took that opportunity to go and actually see the employer myself. So when I, while I was there, I brought up some issues that were of great concern to the workers. For example, their, um, they submitted their sick leave and letters from the doctors when they went on the 4th of April. However, this particular worker was sent a very intimidating letter by the um, by the, the, the employer stating that that was his final formal warning. And the worker, of course, to start off with, a lot of these workers do not understand English, do not speak English, do not read English. So... They had no idea. So when I explained to them, when they they usually sent me whatever information they get from anybody. So when I received that letter before I went up to Mariba, I said to the worker, uh, don't worry about it. When I come up, we'll go and fix it. We'll go and um, and see the, the employer. So I did. And it worked out that the employer did not... Um, the worker submitted his medical certificate um, on the 4th, I, I also interpreted for, for those appointments. So I actually asked the, the worker to make sure he takes this medical certificate to the employer immediately after his, his doctor's appointment, which he did. So when we went there, uh, one of the employees went looking for these uh, medical certificates and she didn't find them the first time. But the second time she went around, she found these, um, informa- these um, paperwork on someone else's desk. So they did apologize in the end. But if we didn't go there and sort that out, this worker would have been, you know, they would have continued, the employer would have continued to harass this worker who does not understand what they're talking about. So I need to ensure that these workers are being treated with respect, that they, um, I've also spoken to them, the employer, about the importance of getting interpreters when they have important matters to talk to the workers about. Because everybody who comes into Australia to work has the same right as anybody else in Australia. So the right to understand for these workers is so important. They need to understand what they're saying. I totally respect the role of the Samoan government here in Australia. And I'm also fully aware that... That this issue, it was in existence a long, long time ago. In my research, I've found submissions from the government of Samoa um, to Australia talking about this very issue. But what has, been, what has been done so far? Not much. This was back in 2019. This um, submission was dated, 2020. There was a big meeting happening in New Zealand where um, government leaders were there and you know and but nothing has been done yet and I sort of understand the reluctance of um, Pacific Island countries to say too much because they don't want their aids to be cut short or um, they want to maintain the good relationship but we can still maintain good relationship in honesty
0: the Samoan government has been contacted for comment on this story. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us.